This Cosmos Live series, Preparing for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages everywhere, and by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. From our recording studios in Philadelphia, this is Cosmos Live, and I'm your host, Rhonda Fabian. The system is a complex, adaptive, evolutionary system. You know, it's the greatest Frankenstein or artificial intelligence we've ever created is this market-based system. And what it does is it, you know, it co-ops all dissent and it rewards those people who best serve the logic of the system. That's Alnur Lara, founding member and executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, organizers, designers, coders, researchers, writers, and others dedicated to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. Alnur writes and speaks about new forms of activism, the structural causes of inequality, and the link between climate change and poverty. He's writing a book about the intersection of spirituality and politics. Welcome to the very first episode of Cosmos Live, Alnur. Thank you for having me. Your organization, The Rules, talks about the kind of economic rules that make it a reality for 60, what, 62 people to control 60% of the world's wealth. So who are these 62 people? And does it matter at all to understand their worldview or agenda? Yeah, that's a complex question. When it comes to the rules, uh, we're, we're also talking about cultural rules and um, not just economic and policy rules. Actually, Oxfam's new research uh, recently came out and it shows eight people, uh, men, eight men, have the same wealth as the, the 50% of, of the human population, 3.5 billion people. And to a certain extent, uh, there doesn't need to be a conspiracy theory, right? It's very easy for rich people to organize uh, when you have one overarching value, which is the increase of capital and the accumulation of wealth. Um, it becomes very easy to organize yourselves uh, in, in that way and create a set of rules that benefit you and, and perpetuate a set of rules that have really been inherited um, you know, over at least the, the last 500 years of, of, of the Western project. But, you know, some would argue the 5,000 years of modernity um, or even, you know, the 12,000 years since the Neolithic revolution, um, since farming. And so we are now at the sort of precipice, the edge of this history. And yes, of course, there's people and, a, you know, a small group of people who are benefiting from a system and a structure that is in place. But the way we see the system is not that anyone is really in control in that sense. Um, you know, I don't even think those eight people or those 62 people have power in the way we think they have power. The, the system is a complex, adaptive, evolutionary system. You know, it's the greatest Frankenstein or artificial intelligence we've ever created is this market-based system. And what it does is it, you know, it co-ops all dissent and it rewards those people who best serve the logic of the system. Well, you know, what's the logic of the system? We just have to look around us to see what it is. It's uh, extractive, it's short-termist, it's greedy, it's life-denying. And so the people who best serve the logic of that system will be the ones who will be best rewarded by the system itself. 
The logic of the system makes it very difficult for anyone at the lower end of the spectrum to benefit. Um, how long do you think this unfair system can last? And what are, what are the kinds of changes that you see coming? You know, the timing question is a tough one. I, I don't think any of us know. And I think that capitalism is a much more resilient um, system than we we think. You know, it, it will destroy the planet. Of course it will. But it'll find ways to mutate and contort um, in, in order to to live as long as they can, regardless of, of the wake of its destruction. And, you know, if we believe that climate science, we're looking at a three to four degree rise in temperature by 2050. That's correlated with about um, 40% biodiversity loss. So 40% of all life on this planet will no longer be with us if, if we reach that goal. You know, we're looking at 10 meter sea level rises. You know, there's, there's uh, dozens of feedback loops in the last uh, IPCC report, the UN's International Panel on, on Climate Change report. And so it, it's really um, a, a sort of discontinuous set of equilibriums that that are possible futures. And and the time is short. In, in some ways, I think we probably have 20 years left of the Western way of living. In many ways, this is a rite of passage. You know, climate change and these big challenges are a rite of passage as a civilization. We're being faced with these stark choices. If we continue on our current path, we're approaching certain destruction, at least, you know, at a planetary level, our host environment will not be able to continue with this level of, of desecration. And at the same time, we have this technology, a certain level of wealth, a certain level of awareness that could allow us to, to sort of move into a new phase of planetary civilization. If the dominant system is represented by monoculture, you know, monoculture of the mind, monoculture of food, uh, we all have Apple computers and Microsoft Office and Nike shoes and listen to Miley Cyrus or, you know, or whatever people listen to these days. Um, uh, the, the antidote in some ways is polyculture, many ways of being, many ways of knowing, many ways of living. And I think that's what we have to try to cultivate, a, a system that decentralizes power locally. So there's strong, resilient local economies and communities that can thrive based on on you know, potentially a shared set of values. And, and I think there are a, a shared set of values um, among people who want to live in symbiosis with life. And, and I think that's what we're all grasping for is how do we create a set of rules and a, a structure that allows that type of flourishing to happen at a local level. You're listening to Cosmos Live, a production of Cosmos Journal, dedicated to transformation of self, communities, institutions, and planet in harmony with all life. You can subscribe at www.cosmosjournal.org. That's cosmos with a K, journal.org. We're talking with Alnur Lada, founding member and executive director of The Rules, a global network of people committed to changing the rules that create inequality and poverty around the world. Alnur, recently I stood on a rooftop in New York city at night with a beautiful full moon rising. And I felt all the human energy of that city, so many millions of people engaged with the very system you describe, running faster and faster just to keep body and soul together. 
it seems like such a big ship, humanity, to try to turn in time to avoid the iceberg. Can we really change? What power do we have to do so? I think that the way change is going to happen is unlike any linear understanding or model we've ever thought of in the past. Um, and, And it is an emergent phenomenon. And from an economic policy perspective, from a rules perspective, uh, sure, we can change it, right? The the system is just a set of rules that are man-made and they're generative. So you decide on certain things like, you know, money is an interest-bearing debt that grows at a certain rate or measuring GDP as the output of of progress. Um, those things can can of course be changed, and when you change those things, the the value system and the incentive structure changes, and and the inner work in some ways is a precondition to outer revolution, because you you need free people, you know, to to do that, and and you also need a system that reflects the values of those people, uh, and and we're in this interesting bind where we have a, a small subsegment of the population that has the the freedom the resources, the privileges, et cetera, to uh, do spiritual work. Uh, and, and you have this huge majority of the planet that's trying to keep body and soul together and are sort of oppressed by this broader system. So we uh, imagine what would happen if we created a world in a system where 7 billion human beings had access to what the average Californian has access to. And, you know, there would be a creative spiritual renaissance on this planet. And, and that is possible. And so the two feed into each other uh, in this dynamic, iterative, nonlinear way. And we have to work on them simultaneously. And, and there's also probably a level in between. You know, I'm sure there's infinite, but there's, there's the individual level of the inner work. There's the community level where um, we're, we're actually manifesting these realities in the social structures that are, are creating the feedback loops and the connective tissue that allow these broader changes to happen. And then there's the, the level of the superstructure where we're changing the rules and the systems. You do a lot of work in writing about universal basic income. Can you explain how that works? Everyone got a salary for uh, essentially just being a citizen. Uh, what, what would happen if everyone in the world got $30,000 a year, you know, per U.S. purchasing power uh, or, or some amount like that? And, and, you know, you could create all sorts of ways to, to mitigate the, the bad effects of something like that. You could create a cryptocurrency that's an alternative currency that doesn't use debt-based money, so it doesn't require perpetual growth. That money could be a demurrage currency. It could devalue at some small amount, you know, 1% a quarter or something. So there's no hoarding and there's actually an incentivizing of gift. Mm-hmm. Um, you could in- incorporate carbon miles into that. So people who spend their money locally get higher purchasing power than people that are importing something. Um, you could account for wealth and income. So if you and I are both cobblers and you're selling more shoes because you have, uh, you know, a better technology or uh, whatever it is, um, that my purchasing power as the, as the cobbler with less money in the bank would be slightly higher to account for that inequality. So you, you could really see how something like universal basic income would, would change the very nature of work and our relationship with GDP and uh, you know, free us from these bullshit jobs. Uh, no one would be working at McDonald's or H&M or Starbucks or whatever if that was the case. They, they wouldn't be keeping body and soul together. They would be doing what they love and getting paid for that and then doing other work in addition. 
And so you, you have to somehow, uh, and, and this is the role really of social movements and of, uh, of civil disobedience and civil society in general, is, is creating uh, an environment and a, and a dynamic that um, ensures that, that power does what's in the best interest of the majority and of the planet and other species. And, 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 and that requires informed citizens that know these alternatives exist, but are also in their own inner work and in their own spiritual path and are awake enough to know that the economic decisions they make at every moment is actually what's keeping the system in place. You know, money is just an arrangement. It's a social arrangement. And as soon as we don't believe in that system and we don't use their debt-based currency and we create our own alternative communities and currencies, et cetera, the, that old system is going to collapse on itself. And that possibility exists. You know, there there is this um, sort of, the butterfly cell exists within the, the chrysalis of the caterpillar. And, but we just don't know how it will come about. That, that's the challenge. No, we really don't, because power is so entrenched. And in fact, even militarized. You and I both spent time, for example, at Standing Rock last fall. Um, and we saw firsthand that power concedes very little. What are some of the lessons you took away from Standing Rock? And do you think we can work within the existing power structure? Or is the chasm just too wide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a moment of bifurcation. You know, there's this great sort of split happening on the planet. The, uh, I feel like the, the darkness is becoming extreme, you know, and the light is becoming extreme simultaneously. And they're going in these sort of two opposite directions. And, and I think the old strategy of reform, and let's somehow convince and persuade people to come into our camp, is not the right strategy anymore. I, I think partly, you know, what, what Standing Rock did that was so important was it created a, a resonant field. You know, it wasn't just about a pipeline. It was about the nature of extractives, uh, our relationship to the earth, um, the, you know, U.S. government's relationship uh, and the and corporations, you know, U.S. government and corporations are interchangeable at this point. But but the power elites relationship to its history of genocide and colonization. And w what was beautiful about Standing Rock, let's say, in comparison to Occupy, um, is it had a much more articulated view. You know, it was itself a ceremony and itself a prayer and itself a, a, a sacred act, which started with the with the sacred fire and was really about in, in some ways, especially for mainstream Western media, a re-indigenization of, of Western values with these broader values of living in symbiosis with nature, with interdependence, uh, with defending the sacred. And I think that's actually what needs to happen, you know, and it's happening at, at a larger and larger scales at, at deeper and deeper resonance is we're sort of defining what we want to be by the actual act of coming together. And we're seeing this convergence of, of, of movements. Just being at Standing Rock, as you know, climate justice groups, traditional NGOs, um, Burning Man types, anarchists, uh, indigenous elders, all these groups are coming together who are united in their struggle against the dominant economic system, which exploits the majority. Like the old Frederick Douglass line, power concedes nothing without a demand. And the demand doesn't have to look like it used to look. It doesn't have to be a protest or a petition or being in front of the White House. It can look like creating a better model and living and embodying that model uh, that has those values that are so core to, to most of humanity. 
um, and that are essentially pro-life. Not to say that, that the opposite of, of, of pro-life is not death. It's, it's sort of anti-life. You know, and that's actually what's being exposed. This current system is essentially anti-life. And we cannot go on in this way, dependent on 3% global GDP growth and the extraction of all of our resources and taking ancient fossils from the ground to prop up a Ponzi scheme economy. I, too, was struck by the anti-life mindset at Standing Rock, uh, a total disregard for the well-being of people and planet. But at the same time, I met people with different points of view. Um, a young man from Mississippi who worked in the oil fields. I spoke to the wife of a cop who was concerned about the safety of her husband. And I met a woman living on the reservation who was opposed to the protests. She felt that joblessness and racism and addiction were larger uh, concerns. And she told me a moving story about going grocery shopping with her son and experiencing a new depth of racism uh, due to the Standing Rock protests. And so we have to somehow keep in mind a multiplicity of views. I have to approach a situation like Standing Rock with love, deep love for all people, or I get lost myself. But at the same time, I have to stand up for what I believe. I have to stand up for Mother Earth. Um, do you think we can find a set of values that unite people? Doesn't our picture of a new world have to be big enough to include everyone? Yeah, I, I think you know there is a um, there is a set of values that that do unite people, and and, and I, I don't want to say that there are universal values per se, because of course they're they're contextual, and what even these words mean are contextual, and we're limited by language itself. But you know we know, for example, from behavioral psychology and evolutionary psychology that we we are hardwired for fairness. And we know, for example, from neuroscience that we have these mirror neurons, that, that we are somehow hardwired for empathy. And, and a lot of our ideology is, these are just cultural assumptions, right? The idea that if we all behave selfishly, somehow some perfect e equilibrium will be created, you know, this invisible hand, which is just essentially a mimetic virus. And so culture is just this calcified set of beliefs that are imposing values on us that aren't necessarily our own. Mm -hmm. And th that's not to say that they're underneath the edifice, that there's, there is some pre-existing shared set of values, but I think there will be an emergent set of values that if we actually have a perspective on how we want to live with nature amongst each other, what our relationship will be like with the people we decide or elect will help run uh, you know, aspects of our society, all of those things, uh, um, a, a set of values will emerge, but that requires us doing the hard work, you know, to a certain extent. It requires us going to first principles and deciding on what type of world we want to live in, what we think our relationship is. And, and all of that has really been obfuscated from us, from everything through our education system, media, uh, the distraction economies of uh, advertising and technology, the extraction industries of, of banking and commerce. And so part of this is us refinding ourselves and rediscovering ourselves. And then part of this is us contributing to some emergent culture that holds those values that we decide uh, mean the most to us as a civilization. You're listening to Cosmos Live, a production of Cosmos Journal. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of Cosmos community, dedicated, engaged members who contribute to Cosmos in numerous ways. Get involved 
at cosmosjournal.org. Our guest is Alnur Lada, founding member and executive director of The Rules and a regular contributor to Cosmos. He's also writing a book on the intersection of spirituality and politics. Welcome back, Alnur. Two of the themes in your writing are anarchy and mysticism. How can we use these as points of reference on our journey toward the emergent world you describe? Is there a North Star for building a post-capitalist, post-carbon world? Yeah, to a certain extent. And this idea of, of, of the North Star, I, I think the implication is that it's, it's you who decides on what that North Star is. And that requires a certain level of deprogramming and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, removing the veils of modernity that actually block us from seeing what we really want. And the idea of mysticism and anarchism being the same impulse at, at first feels jarring. You know, how do these two things go together? But, you know, what the mystical traditions have always been about is direct experience, about gnosis. So, you know, no popes or mullahs or Qurans or Bibles mediate uh, our relationship with with God, whatever that means to you, or the universe itself, or nature. We are nature. We are God. We are the universe unfolding on itself and becoming conscious of itself. And and that perspective is is very consistent with a more anarchist political philosophy, which is you know the tagline of uh, informal tagline of anarchism is no gods, no masters, and this idea that uh, we are the best arbiters of how we should live, and not in a selfish individual way, but in community, in a way that is contextually relevant to our histories, to our geographies, to our cultures. And that, you know, not to say there's no government, but if there was government, the role of government is to decentralize that power locally. And the idea is about disintermediation. It is about gnosis. It is about deciding for ourselves what those North Stars will be and what values we want to incorporate. And for, for me personally, where I look to inspiration is the original wisdom of the indigenous communities of this planet, because they have been living in symbiosis with nature uh, for as long as the human experiment has been going. They are our sort of closest kin to when we were in touch. And not to romanticize uh, indigenous communities, because of course they, they have been decimated by modernity and uh, we're all entangled with modernity. It's impossible for anyone in a globalized world to, you know, historically be uh, outside of, of the machinations of the last 5,000 years uh, that have led us to this point, uh, especially this extreme point of late stage capitalism, where, uh, as George Monbiot says, uh, everything has been globalized except for our consent. So I look at indigenous communities and the original wisdom, and, and I also look at the experiments on the edge that, that are you know, opting out of the dominant system, that are reanimating values that are core to a sort of a new type of, of project. So I look at places like uh, the Global Eco Village Movement, places like Camara, the alternative community in, in Portugal, the Transition Town Movement in, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, the Zapatista Movement in, in Mexico, you know, rural farmers who have this, a deep political understanding uh, have a deep indigenous wisdom who have really created a solidarity economy and community that is self-sufficient and, and, and based on a set of values that are self-reflective 
that have come from the the history and geography and culture and and the antecedent forces of that place. And that's where I, I, I see the most interesting experiments happening. It says to me that maybe the values we seek to articulate come directly from nature itself. So deepening our understanding of ecosystem, for instance, and how nature works to generate value for all, to share and to cooperate so that everyone in the community, the eco-community, as Thomas Berry would say, thrives equally, right? That, to me, seems like a model we can learn from because you sort of can't argue with nature. It's just what it is. No, yeah, it's got a 4.4 billion year head start on us. But for the person listening today who, who really, um, a lot of these are, are new concepts, they know that something is coming, they feel a lot of fear perhaps from just consuming a lot of mainstream media. What can that person begin to do today to shift their thinking and take action where they live to be part of the solution for their families and communities? Yeah, this is the this is the the, the nub of it, right? And and uh, I think if we're you know coming from the the perspective of, of, of mystical anarchism, which, which uh, I, I tend to do, uh, you know, it's hard for me to create any type of prescription for anyone. Um, you know, I, I feel we are all on our own journeys, and it, it really has to be a decision of, of uh, how aware do we want to be in this process and. Of course, our culture is littered with cautions and warnings of biting from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and the burden of, of knowing uh, how the world operates, essentially. And, and I think that's really the first choice. That's the first gateway, is if, do we really want to understand? And if we do, the search uh, to go back to sort of these three pillars uh, that we talked about uh, has to be holistic. So there's an economic and political side, really understanding. Uh, and and it's, not, uh, it's not politics and it's not economics. It's um, understanding the way the operating system works because we're all affected by it. You know, ideology is always a background condition. As soon as we say I'm not political or I'm not economic or I don't have ideology, you are a part of somebody else's ideology. You know, whether we like it or not, for example, if you live in the United States, you know, 5% or so of your tax money goes to the military industrial complex and is funding wars in, and, and violence in Syria and Yemen and Afghanistan and countless countries uh, around the world. And so the, this, these ideologies exist. So I would say, you know, really, if, you, if we make that first gateway decision to bite into the fruit of the tree of knowledge is to under, make some effort to understand how this system works. And, and actually, it's not a burdensome thing. You know, and and it's, uh, there's also this balancing hack, right? When, when you start understanding what's happening from a climate change perspective or whatever, we often feel this deep sense of angst and anxiety and overburden. But this is also part of a spiritual practice, is to be able to hold this level of ambiguity, to be able to hold the grief, and to be able to understand this broader system and, and still find the resilience and the ability to, to be in flow with it. And, you know, to take it seriously enough to do the work, but not so seriously you're paralyzed by it. And, and, and I think a whole sort of practice opens up, which really leads to the second pillar, which is the spiritual, the metaphysical, and, and us relearning what that means 
to us and creating some kind of practice that is based on empathy and compassion and might have a political aspect, but it is also open to these new modalities. Like globalization for all its downside, what it's also done is brought spiritual practices and techniques we would never have had access to uh, as, as people living in, in North America or Western Europe or, or whatever, you know, 100 years ago, access to plant medicines that hold deep, deep wisdom uh, and have had indigenous tra traditions for, you know, 5,000 years. And, and, and whatever way I think we could get to these sort of boundary dissolving states, whether that's meditation, yoga, psychedelics, tantra, you know, the, the paths are infinite. But, but part of what that spiritual work does is it lets us go to a place where we can see the deep cultural programming. It um, transcends values and cultural norms. And then you can see in what ways are we blocked. And so the, the political and the spiritual are deeply intertwined. And then the third aspect is the community and eros. And um, really living in, in, in community in a different way. And that doesn't mean it has to be some kind of, you know, opt-out community in, in, in the jungle somewhere, you know, in, in urban environments, um, in, in familial environments. It's, it's really creating structure around those relationships in, in, in a way that these ideas are discussed, the spiritual practices are discussed, the, the taboos of culture are discussed, and a support network of people who want to be on this journey together because none of us have the answer. Right? We're all figuring it out. And the stronger our connective tissue, our network of relationships is, the, 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 the better our ability to navigate this great time of chaos. And, and I think there's a reason we've incarnated in troubled times. And the, that's a direct omen that somehow our souls are here in order to, to best address the troubles of these times. And, and that's a different way to sort of come to the world than to say, actually, you know, my job is, my role in this incarnation is to serve this existing system and get the right job and be seen in a certain way and have certain material wealth. And of course, nobody says that in that way or, or explicitly thinks like that, but that's the default mode we all operate in. So those to me are really um, the three inquiries or three lines of inquiry into this uh, broader, not only meditation, but praxis. It's the doing and the reflecting simultaneously that's creating this movement. These sound like themes you'll be exploring more in your new book. Yeah, I, I've been working on it for a while is, is to expand uh, some of the notions in the mystical anarchism essay, actually, that I, I first wrote for, for Cosmos. And it, it's going to be a while. We, we sort of uh, have a couple other big things on, on the burner. We're, we're actually uh, writing uh, a manifesto type book for the rules that sort of spells out the broader worldview and the various cosmovisions that could exist in, in, in the post-capitalist world. And our, our policy director, Jason Hickel, who's also a professor at the London School of Economics, he's an amazing economic anthropologist. His new book is out uh, called The Divide. And it's, uh, it's a, the global history of, of, of inequality. And it, it has a lot of the key tenets and structural thinking and logic of, of the way the rule sees the world and assesses what's happening and, and uh, provides a set of alternatives. So, yeah, our, our focus in the immediate is, is, is really bringing the divide 
Jason Hickel's book out into the world and and finishing up our manifesto and then the the project of spirituality meets politics um, will will be the third and and hopefully it'll happen in the next eighteen months or so. Well, we will share these links with our listeners as they become available on the Cosmos website. And of course, we would encourage anyone seeking more information about these ideas or issues to follow Alnur's work and also to subscribe to Cosmos Journal, where we regularly explore these topics. You know, maybe we just one thing more to say, um, just in terms of hearing a podcast like this and having these discussions, and we touched on this earlier where a lot of people feel that, you know, I, I'm not political or I'm not economic and, and, and this is not my, my world. And then I, I think there's also this sort of spiritual belief, as we talked about earlier, of the entire universe is within me and the inner work is what matters. And it, it always brings to mind this great Ram Das line where he says, the universe is perfect, including my desire to change it. And so, you know, this idea that the evolution is not something that's happening outside of us. It's not something that is strictly cosmological or ethereal or scientific or any of the, it's, it's, it's all of that wrapped into one. So even the political and economic, even our, our ability to sort of act in the world is what influences the, the sort of co-evolutionary state. And as um, Karen Barad, who's a, um, a great philosopher at the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, her, her book is called Meeting the Universe Halfway. And she brings a lot of sort of quantum physics into the, the realm of moral and political philosophy. And, and, and this idea that, you know, that's what we're learning from quantum physics, is that there is no one way if, if uh, something is going to be a particle or a wave depends on the context, who's looking at it and what way is it being examined and, and what are the, the, the structural constraints around it. So we, we do meet the universe halfway. We, we change the field of possibility and they, they reconfigure into another infinite field of possibility. But that requires our action. And as Sri Aurobindo used to talk about, this is integral yoga. This is the practice of integral yoga. It's not, uh, enlightenment does not happen in the cave. It happens in the mouth of the lion. You know, it happens at that moment you're being tested and there's omens around what the integral yoga would be. So incarnating in a time that are as troubled as our times are is an omen that that is something we should engage in. And, and knowing that, you know, 95% of humanity of our brothers and sisters are suffering, that 200 species a day are going extinct is an omen that this is this is the thing to work on collectively. And the more we can remove the veils of the programming of modernity, that we could go back to our empathic roots and come from a place of solidarity and justice, not, not charity and pity, uh, which is the, you know, uh, a motivation for us, especially in the religious realm for, for this type of work. But, but coming from that in this interdependent sense of that we are all fractal reflections of this greater whole. And that is uh, one of the highest spiritual practices. And, and to, to quote Sri Aurobindo again, he says, we, we now have to become practitioners of evolution, not just theoreticians. I think that's a perfect quote to conclude with. It's time to put into practice what we know to be true. Thank you, Alnur. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today on Cosmos Live. Thank you for having me, Rhonda.